I think I'm in agreement um, with selling a team. I think that's the best outcome for everyone involved. The players, the fans, the staffers, uh, everyone that was impacted on so many levels. That's James Jones, general manager of the Phoenix Suns, speaking Monday for the first time about the fact that his boss, Robert Sarver, has announced that he's going to sell both the Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury. It brings some closure uh, to a long period of discomfort and uneasiness. But it also gives us a pivot point to continue to focus on raising the standards of our organization and leading by example. Sarver had been the focus of a massive ESPN investigation that triggered an NBA investigation that finally triggered a one-year suspension earlier this month after the league confirmed a history of misogynistic and racist acts, which is why Suns point guard Chris Paul immediately found that suspension insufficient and why Paul spoke up again on Monday, too. It was unfortunate. Uh, Stuff going on in the workplace, you know, is is really unfortunate. It was tough to to read, and it was disturbing. And so I called up my colleague Baxter Holmes, the ESPN journalist whose original reporting provided the entire basis for the NBA's investigation, just to check in. If I go back to last November, 2021, when our initial investigation dropped. I remember in Phoenix, they kind of went into a bunker mode of, we'll see what happens. We'll see what the investigation finds. Our job is just to kind of focus on basketball. Watching the Suns media day, the tone felt kind of dark. I texted with a colleague there who described it as, almost a funeral. And I was noticing how when the players and Monty Williams and James Jones were asked about the findings in the report that the NBA commissioned and about the specific language, the treatment of women, the use of the N-word, the overall conduct, some of them, it seemed, really had a tough time squaring that with the person who they had interviewed with, who brought them into the organization, who had been in charge, signed the checks, so to speak. Right, that's what Devin Booker, their star guard, basically admitted. You know, it's tough for me because, you know, that's not the the Robert Sarver that I know. Um, It's not the Robert Sarver that welcomed me to Phoenix with open arms. Um, But at the same time, I'm not, you know, insensitive to everybody that's involved in this situation. While some of the players talked about not knowing that this kind of conduct was taking place or they didn't necessarily experience it, they spoke to staffers and employees who, in the NBA's report and in our initial investigation, described enduring levels of misconduct and trauma and the ways in which it upended their lives. Watching the Suns media day, you heard people use terms like disgusting in terms of describing some of the findings that were in the report. And I think employees were wanting to hear those kinds of things, you know, feeling that their voices were heard and that others on the court and who have much larger platforms would speak for them. And now there is going to be a sale of two franchises, the Suns and the Mercury, expected to stretch deep into the billions. And it's monumental. 
Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Mercury and the Suns, has begun the process of selling the teams, he said in a statement. Sarver was suspended for a year and fined $10 million last week after an investigation found he used the N-word at least five times, had been involved in unfair treatment of female employees and bullying behavior. So today, we go inside the latest twist in the Robert Sarver saga. Why it happened and why this story isn't over yet. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, September 28th. This is ESPN Daily. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Baxter, I do want to be very clear about this. Your reporting is the reason we're here today. It's the reason why this all unfolded as it did, because you broke the story back in November and you reported after talking to more than 70 current and former employees of Robert Sarver that this was a workplace that was not just toxic, not just hostile, but something that was staggering in its breath in all of these ways, ranging from allegations of racism and misogyny And it led to the Suns themselves, the organization, attacking your personal credibility. They said that the team had, quote, retained defamation counsel after it became clear that Mr. Holmes' reporting was plagued by journalistic failures, end quote. And now, a year later, Robert Sarver was suspended, he was fined, he's selling both of the teams, the Suns and the Mercury, and I imagine you've been hearing from people that were your sources and possibly new ones since... All of this news broke. What's it been like in terms of your inbox and those conversations that you've been having? Overwhelming. The amount of people that have reached out, both the day that the NBA's report came out, and then every time there was a development, and then the day that Robert announced he was going to be selling both franchises, there was certainly a state of shock, but there's was, there was kind of a range of emotions, and it depended on the day. When the NBA announced their findings, some felt you know, validation that their experiences were taken seriously and included this report. But coupled with the NBA announcing a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine, the resounding response I got from individuals was, this is a slap on the wrist. If you look at the range of misconduct described in this report, anyone else would be fired for even a small slice of these things. And this person's allowed to return in a year. So there was a lot of fury and anger. And then that increased when Adam Silver gave his press conference the next day. I know some individuals wanted to call him up and scream at him for feeling that the way he phrased certain things, such as saying that many of these instances were long ago historical events, Mm. that really set some people off. I think you have to look at the totality of circumstances. You're looking at behavior over an 18-year period. I do believe that... Mr. Sarver clearly um, has evolved as a person over that 18-year period. 
I think much of the behavior in question stems from much earlier in his tenure as an NBA owner. But that's something that they literally said to you, that they wanted to call up the commissioner of the NBA and scream at him after watching how that press conference went down. Yeah, yeah. And even while the press conference was going, while it was live, I was receiving messages from people who were livid. It was very triggering to some people who also felt if this is the way the league is going to handle it, if this is the way Silver is going to talk about these things, if there's ever something like this again, there's no way I'm going to trust the NBA to go to them on this. Like, we didn't trust our own HR department and didn't trust, you know, calling the hotline, the NBA's hotline, which is only a few years old, didn't trust filing any kind of complaints with them because their fear of retaliation. And then Adam and the league responds in such a way to this. And the comments that Adam made, which I know he walked back a little bit about, it's different for owners. Owning property, the rights that come with, with, with owning an NBA team, um, you know, how that's set up within our constitution, what it would take to remove that team, you know, from his control is a very involved process. And it's different than holding a job. It just is when, when, when you actually um, own a, a team. It's, a, it's, it's just a very different proposition. People kept using the same line to me, like owners should be held to the highest standards. They're at the top of the organization. Mm -hmm. They set the culture. They set the tone of the workplace. Any leadership position should be held to the highest standards. So people were really wondering, like, how can we possibly move forward with this? And then there's the day that he announces the sale. And it's just shock. Developing story into SportsCenter, Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Mercury and the Suns, has begun the process of selling the teams, he said in a statement. I certainly got messages of people saying that they had tears of joy, but it was also this, you know, shock of, I can't believe that this happened. If you looked at the tone of the team statements, of Robert's statements, dating back to before our story yes. was published, to the day it was published, to the day that the NBA's findings were announced, there was a strong tone of defiance. And so people, you know, inside the organization, around the organization who participated, in the investigation and were close to the team, just couldn't believe that the day had come when Robert had, would sell both these teams. I did not anticipate this happening, Baxter. And a large part of that was because of that press conference by Adam Silver that you mentioned. And this was September 13th, just over two weeks ago now. And in that presser, if Sarver and the Suns were defiant in their stance, what Adam Silver was doing was essentially saying he is not going to have to sell the team. Adam Silver was asked whether he had spoken to Robert Sarver about whether he was willing to sell. And Silver said, on the record, in front of many, many people, that he had not spoken to Sarver about that option. Were there any discussions with Robert Sarver during this process about voluntarily selling the Suns? No. I, uh, the discussions, we, we, Robert Sarver and I spoke several times along the way and I, we allowed, I allowed the investigation to unfold. We didn't prejudge it. And so the question for me, Baxter, the enormous question for me here, given all of this shock is what changed? Why did Robert Sarver suddenly decide to sell? Well, my colleague Ramona Shelburne and I have heard that there was internal pressure from players who reached out to Adam Silver. I know Steph Curry talked about it. I had conversations with Adam Silver directly and 
kind of got his point of view of what decisions and uh, I guess mechanisms he had to intervene and, and bring down a punishment that was worthy of you know the, the action. Chris Paul talked about it at Media Day as well. I talked to Adam uh, regularly, you know what I mean? Um, also, uh, Kyle Lowry, CJ McCollum, um, and, and different guys. But the backlash, I was just hours after Adam Silver's press conference when LeBron publicly spoke out on Twitter and said the league got it wrong. Here is what LeBron had to say about the ruling. Quote, read through the Sarver stories a few times now. I gotta be honest, our league definitely got this wrong. There's no place in this league for that kind of behavior. I love this league and I deeply respect our leadership, but this isn't right. And then you saw Draymond Green, which I thought this was a very interesting tactical move from him. He didn't just say that the league got it wrong. He said that we need to go to an ownership vote. We need to hold a vote and we'll see who's with us and who's against us. So what I would say is then why don't we pose a vote? That vote would fall on the other owners of these assets. If that's the only way, then let's see what those numbers are. In my talks with people around the league, the owners certainly know that how they vote, even if it's behind closed doors, is certainly going to get out. And Draymond was kind of pressing on this. You know, we'll see who's with us and who's against us. And I thought that was a key turning point. So there was a lot of momentum. But then you also had the prospect of Media Day, the notion that you're going to have a lot of major players speaking out about it. And it started to appear, certainly from those who I talked to, that waiting a year after his suspension might not be tenable. The temperature, it really increased quite a bit. Well, you mentioned Steph, you mentioned Chris Paul. I mean, these are superstars in the league. LeBron also famously chimed in on Twitter. And so what do you think the state of that union is? I guess the literal and figurative union, the alliance between Adam Silver and his stars who have been otherwise so conspicuously politically cooperative with the NBA's initiatives compared to other leagues, certainly. I think that because the league ultimately got to the place that some inside of it wanted to go with Robert selling the team, that there's some measure of saving face. But if you go back to the day the NBA announced the report, the kind of outrage that existed then, and then the outrage that really ramped up after Adam Silver's press conference, but people watching that press conference live, the things that they said to me was, I've never seen Adam Silver seems so unprepared for what were pretty obvious questions that he was going to face. Others described to me, knowing Adam, having been a part of the league for a long time, that they had never seen him stand before a crowd and seemingly not believe in what he was saying and try to fidget his way around. This is the decision. This is kind of how and why we got there. I thought that Adam, who is a lawyer by trade, mm -hmm and the report, which was written by lawyers, I think a lot of what was in there, it felt pretty legal. And certainly legal experts who I talked to were like, yeah, this is a very legal kind of phrase report, the concept of animus and all these other things. We are not able to conclude, based on the context of those statements, that they were, they were said out of racial animus. And so I'm sure that they were towing the line to a certain respect with a lot of that. But 
I don't know how much the league was considering what the backlash was going to look like. In some ways, maybe you just can't know. Beyond that, you know, you asked about his relationship with the players still. Yeah. I think that that is strong. And, you know, maybe he's the beneficiary of some of the things that have happened where the league has looked more progressive. But I want to be clear about something. When it comes to the progressive label that the NBA has, so much of that is driven by the players themselves. Yes. We can go back to, you know, the, the Milwaukee Bucks and their boycott in the bubble. You know, really so many other things. I mean, the, the Heat, after the Donald Sterling instance, you saw the outrage from players. So much of these things are driven by the players themselves. They are the ones who have used their platforms, whether it's social media accounts or even we saw, as we saw with Draymond Green podcasts or other public statements elsewhere to push forward reform, to push forward social justice, to push forward these things. And the league looks good as a byproduct of their players being vocal in that way. But make no mistake, it's the players who lead the charge with respect to the quote-unquote progressive label of the NBA. The other part of this investigation and, and the way this whole story has unfolded that has been curious to me too, Baxter, is just where the WNBA fits into all of this. Because it was revealed last week that neither the Players Association in the WNBA or the league itself were consulted during the NBA's investigation, which is pretty mind-boggling to me, not just because they are one of the teams in the portfolio of Robert Sarver here, but also because so much of this story that you reported had to do with allegations of misogyny, of mistreatment towards women. And Sarver, being the longtime owner of this team, the Phoenix Mercury, it, it felt almost like an afterthought at times. And I'm curious what you made of that part of the dynamic. Well, to be fair, my initial story focused solely on the Suns. I was not reporting on what happened inside the Mercury under his ownership. So that was a sole focus. And, you know, the, the lawyers I know and the NBA launched their report based on my story. So I understand it from that standpoint. This is the story. They're launching one based on the story. They're going to look into it to, to vet it and see like, okay, these things are described. And I know there were instances where they just went through the story with people who worked there. Like, what do you think of this? Did you see anything like that? Were you <laughs> working for the team when that happened? And <laughs> And uh, I know some individuals were like, yeah, I was in the room when that happened. Here's the other details I can provide. You should call this person X, Y, and Z. Here's their phone number and email addresses. And, and here's some emails I have that may be useful to you. So the focus of it was that. But I will say, you know, throughout my reporting and then in the months when I was covering the investigation that was based on my own, there would be this interesting refrain from staffers who I talked to who would say, you know, race is really important and I understand why everyone is focusing on it. This is, you know, a largely black league. You have a white owner. The optics there are pretty clear. And you look at past things like with Donald Sterling. Yep. But they would say, I don't want to minimize though, or I don't want it to be lost in the shuffle, the conduct towards and, and comments towards women. I would have individuals also say to me, you know, if this was just a story about misogyny, would anybody care? Or is the only reason people care because there is this race element involved into it? The fact that people 
were openly wondering that and basically wondering like, do I matter? Do these things matter at large? Do they matter in a league that's so male dominated? It's not lost on me where the dynamics are with respect to women. I don't want to say that there's a tiered system in terms of like what people necessarily care about, but to these women and to others, there was a question of, of where that ranked as well. Coming up, the human costs of Robert Sarver's workplace culture. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So Baxter, I really want to get into the impact that the sale, that Sarver's exit is going to have on the actual people who worked for the Suns, who worked for the Mercury. But before we get there, we do need to just disentangle some very actually interesting business stuff first. Because to sell an NBA team in 2022, it is an extraordinary transaction. And I'm curious what you're hearing about the marketplace. What could the Suns in particular cost? Well, first of all, look, I'll, I'll say right now, I won't be surprised if this goes over $4 billion. Mm. Um, the Suns are an extremely attractive organization. They're close to LA. They're close to Vegas. They're a pretty short flight from the Bay Area. Uh, it's a warm weather team. It's a team with a lot of rich history. You go back to how this team performed. Uh, they were... a perennial playoff contender yeah, um, and and a, a fierce Western uh, conference contender for so many years. Throughout my whole childhood, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You think of the, those years under Jerry Colangelo and Barkley and whatnot. This is a very good, consistently very, very good team. So it has a lot of things going for it. Then you got a new practice facility. The arena itself has gone through some major renovations. Um, the team is good. You know, there, there are some promising young players on this team. And then... Just think of the fact there are only so many of these teams and there are only so many exactly. that ever come up for sale. Yeah. Uh, and I, I often think of this. There was a, a great New Yorker piece recently kind of about super yachts. <laughs> and people who have money, there's all kinds of luxuries that the world can afford them. 
whether it's a crazy yachts or, or real estate or things of that nature. But teams are different because there are only so many of them. And for as much, you know, that uh, a huge yacht or a place on Central Park West can give you, there is a cachet and a celebrity and a coolness of being an owner of a professional sports franchise, particularly one in the NBA. Uh, it's just, it's different. You know, there are owners who I think we know more about them because they are NBA owners, not because they are successful billionaires. But even in that exclusive club of 30 teams, 30 pieces of preciously, viciously guarded real estate, you're saying that even among that, there is a club inside of it and the Suns are among the most valuable. 100%. This is a team that I remember talking to a player. They were at the Suns maybe a decade ago. Um, and they were just like, you know, it's a shame what's happened to the culture because everybody wants to be there. If you had the right kind of ownership and leadership in there, it could completely transform this franchise because they, they are a place that's a free agent destination. If you look at the pros and cons of Phoenix and the Suns organization, and, and I'm a prospective buyer because I have, uh, oodles and oodles of wealth that are just sitting around. There are so many boxes on the pro side of the ledger that are checked. Yes. And so there's going to be a fierce bidding war involving, I'm sure, a lot of big names. And that final figure will be eye-popping. And in terms of the people who might actually be able to afford a $4 billion plus price tag, who's coming to mind, Baxter, as you've come to understand it? Well, we've... I think touched on some rumors around some names like people like Larry Ellison or Jeff Bezos. At that kind of number, you're slimming down the list of potential buyers. You're going to the, the uber 1% of wealth. But then you also have to take into account potential groups that could come in and buy the team who could get wealth together. Um, if you remember, that's how this team was bought in the first place. In 2004, uh, Robert Sarver led a group, I think, of about 20 individuals to buy the team for what was then a record, uh, almost $400 million, <laughs> um, which is, you know, he, he's going to be getting a very nice return on his investment um, uh, this time around. But I'm sure a lot of the people who, uh, what, attend that, that conference in Sun Valley that was depicted in Succession right, um, right. in Idaho, it's going to be a lot of those folks. I don't have specific names or anything that I would probably talk about just yet. But, uh, you know, you and I know well um, the, the, the tax bracket of those who are going to be interested in this team th that are going to be a part of the bidding process. And so as to the infinitely less rich, the far less famous people in this story, the real people who comprise this team, right? The non-player employees, the day-to-day -day operations people, the people you spoke to about the egregious workplace that Robert Sarver had built. What have you heard from them about the question of litigation? What recourse do they have going forward. In our initial story, we reported instances where members of the Sun's Human Resources Department would at times pull employees aside and recommend that they sue the organization for any range of issues that they were experiencing, mm. you know, tied to misconduct. It could be retaliation, racial discrimination, sexual harassment, whatever, any, any of these kinds of things. Many employees said, I felt that I had no power. I don't have the financial resources to engage in a prolonged legal battle against an organization uh, that is valued at this much money. Or if it was, you know, specifically against one of the executives or against Robert, I can't compete financially in that. So I'm just going to 
go away. I will sign the severance agreement and the non-disclosure agreement that is being offered, and that's it. But when the NBA launched their investigation, certainly there were uh, former employees who were like, I've often thought about whether I could sue the team for these things that I went through. If it was uh, discrimination, retaliation, harassment, there was a range of things. And they wanted to see and wait until the report came out to feel if, okay, these things were vetted, they were confirmed by the attorneys, I have more of a case here. In speaking to one attorney recently, they read the report and said, there are absolutely things in here that people could bring a solid case forward. Now, it depends somewhat on the statute of limitations in these various things. We're talking about a period of roughly 18 years that's covered in the report. I know that some individuals there are still weighing some things. They may be seeing about the possibility of joining up and packaging lawsuits together. So that is definitely a topic of conversation amongst those who were involved in the Suns. But if there is any, I'll do my best to report on it and let you know. So in terms of those attorneys that you spoke to and what they saw in the reports about what Suns employees went through and saw, how would you describe the genre or subgenre of allegations that those attorneys found most actionable? Gender discrimination was the strongest one. I mean, in the 43-page report, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff. Certainly, he said, you know, you could have people coming forward for general hostile workplace things, and, you know, they'd have to make a certain case about how these things impacted their life and going to therapy, and it ended my career, and I had to switch fields and move out of state. The, the prospect of the, the race stuff and Robert saying that he was repeating something that somebody else said the attorney who I spoke to said, yeah, that kind of that muddies the waters a little bit because then you don't really have an understanding of intent. But they said, if you tell a pregnant woman that her you know, current state is going to limit her professionally, there's no murkiness there about animus or anything else. So that things like that are are cut and dry. And look, I understand that Robert Sarver is obviously the biggest ticket item here. He's the boss. He's the guy overseeing all of this workplace culture. But underneath him, Baxter, how many of the people who participated in this culture still remain, as you now understand it? This is a big talking point amongst current staffers and amongst um, people who recently left. They would say, look, Robert is going to be leaving but there are still individuals at the top of the organization in leadership positions, um, not on the basketball side, I wanna be clear about that, who they feel are culpable in this kind of behavior. And some of them have said to me, look, we can't have anybody who was in a leadership position who oversaw a workplace where these things kind of happened. Like we can't have anybody here like that, so they're gonna clean house. And some staffers have told me that they hope that those things happen, but that they're also not sure. And that currently, they are hoping for continued change. And I know that um, on the day that Robert announced he was going to be selling the team, that the team's president and CEO, Jason Rowley, held an all-employee Zoom, where he took some pointed questions from staff that were submitted through the team's HR department. And one of them, in fact, the very first question was about whether members of leadership who... Uh, I, in, in many words, were complicit or culpable in the workplace culture, would face punishment mm. over these types of things happening. And he said that there were items in the report 
that they were going to take a closer look at and take corrective action where appropriate. So that is a very top of mind sentiment for individuals who are the sons and who are no longer there, but were there as of pretty recently. There are the legal cases, hypothetically, that could be mounted, but there's also just the human cost, like the toll that the people you spoke to are alleging here. So give us a sense of what the effects of this workplace actually were on, on real people in terms of the careers they thought they might have. So I'm really glad that you asked me that because this has been the thing that's been on my mind the most ever since the NBA announced their findings in the days since and since Robert Sarver announced that he was going to be selling both the Suns and the Mercury. And then even on media day where you had players of the Suns asked about what they would say to the individuals who experienced these things. During my reporting, I don't know how many times I heard this particular sentence. I couldn't take it anymore. And it, it was from so many people, men and women, all kinds of different backgrounds, who, some of whom dreamed of working for the Phoenix Suns or dreamed of working in the NBA. And some individuals were warned beforehand about going to that organization and the type of things that others who had worked there had experienced. And some didn't believe, oh, that, you know, there's no way these things are real. There were so many individuals who had such short tenures, you know, maybe a year, maybe two at most. Um, people there told me on numerous occasions that they stopped trying to learn new employees' names because they felt like those would just, they would come in they get, you know, caught up in what the workplace culture was and they'd be out. And mm. the team is being sold, but the amount of people who, quite frankly, just sobbed on the phone as they recounted trauma that they experienced and describing wishing that they had spoken up years ago because there were so many others that came after them and the stories of what they went through were the same. And maybe if they had spoken up earlier, they could have spared pain and trauma to those who followed years later. That was real. And then let's not forget, for all the change that's taking place, this kind of behavior in certain ways and in, in, in some corners of the organization, and as the report laid bare, it occurred for almost 18 years. That is a long time. There are a lot of failures that have taken place over that period. Failures of accountability, both at the league level, you know, within the Suns, around the Suns, that led to this going on for a period that stretched almost two decades. I remember there was this woman who had been let go and she was very down about it. And a colleague reached out to her and said, hey, look, there are so many people around the NBA and even in professional sports and outside of it who used to be employees of the Phoenix Suns. And they have moved on and they're doing great things. They're leaders in other fields. They're on other teams in the NBA or in, in other you know, pro sports leagues. And they're doing amazing things. So you should wear that, that former Phoenix Suns title as a badge of honor because you made it through, you survived. I remember talking to individuals who would describe how their significant others begged them to leave because they were like, your mental, physical, emotional, everything well-being 
has declined at such a precipitous rate. This isn't good for you. We have to leave. No matter what, you've got to get out of there. Um, so the, the human toll and the trauma, I will, I'll never forget these conversations. I know that we, the game, we focus on the players, wins and losses and whatnot, but these are all workplaces. There are people who make these teams go that in, in really important ways. And the amount of trauma and human wreckage along the way through this entire process is something I don't think should be forgotten. Baxter Holmes, thank you again for your reporting. Thank you for having me. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.